Welcome to Welcome to Welcome to Eric Gonzalez and Michael Stir. Welcome to Court of Opinion. I'm Eric Gonzalez. And I'm Mike Stir. Well, Stir, I saw last night that Austin Reeves is now 36,000 points away from eclipsing LeBron as the number two <laughs> scorer in the NBA. How does that feel? Honestly, it's a major accomplishment. The Lakers are just doing historical things this year. Just a really exciting team to watch. It seems like on a nightly basis, they find a new way to, you know, surprise us. So really, really exciting oh, stuff. We'll get to that in a little bit. But two starts. We got some players returning over the last couple of weeks. Durant came back for the Nets. Oladipo and Mar- uh, Marquise Morris are back for the Heat. Draymond Green is back for the Warriors. And Porzingis coming in and helping the Wizards. But to start, Durant, how does he look for the Nets? And has his return shown that the Nets are still contenders? I mean, he has obviously shown to everyone that he has not really had any residual effects from whatever injury he had. In the time that he's been back, in the last 10 games, he's averaged 30 points per game, 7.3 assists, 6.3 rebounds, shooting his usual elite 53% from the field, 39% from three, 92% from the free throw. Honestly, the guy has looked incredible. He dropped 53 points against the New York Knicks, um, and they've started winning games again. If you look at their last five, they've won four of their last five, and they do have a part-time Kyrie Irving that seemingly is liable to possibly drop 50 as well on any other given day. So I think that if you're a number one seed team like the Miami Heat, you hope that Kevin Durant and the Nets keep winning because I think that it would be such a – bad reward as a first seed team to have to go in and play the nets in the first round because even though this team's record is really not that impressive right now they have two guys that on any given night can go off for potentially 50 points i don't know that any other team in the league right now can say that so um very explosive very dangerous team uh, definitely not someone that you want to see in the first round and if you're the miami heat you hope that they can catch up to the raptors Well, and they have the play-in game, so you have to imagine that uh, they would probably beat the Raptors in that play-in game. I think that the Nets would probably want to play the 76ers rather than the Miami Heat for both an easier easier matchup as well as to kick James Harden out of the two-seed. Uh, you, you also have to look at the Bulls and the Cavaliers who have been reeling as of late and are have now slid down the standings from where they once were with the Bucks and Celtics creeping up now into the top four spots. So if the Bulls and the Cavs continue to slump and go down, then the Nets will eventually eclipse them and grab one of those five or six seeds. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see, but I think that definitely a team that at the very least, can get out of the first round simply off the fact that Kevin Durant or Kyrie Irving could potentially win a game single-handedly for you. So this is definitely a team that is very dangerous. They have a very high ceiling. It's just you never know what you're going to get from them on a night-to-night basis, especially given that they don't even really have a consistent starting lineup with Kyrie Irving out. But definitely a team that, since Durant has returned, has started uh, playing some winning basketball again. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned the Heat. 
Oladipo, Morris back, Morris back after that shove from Nikola Jokic that gave him uh, whiplash and Oladipo back from that leg injury that has kept him out for nearly a year. What have you thought about their couple of games being back and what's the ceiling with both of these players being healthy? So the Oladipo situation is still obviously a fluid one that's developing. He hasn't played in over two years. It's not the same as Kevin Durant's return or some of these other guys coming back because his injury was obviously much more severe and his surgery requires a much longer healing process. So he's not really able right now to go full go the way that um, we are used to seeing. He's on a minutes restriction and has only averaged 16.3 minutes per game since his return. In the four games that he's been back, there have been some mixed results. Um, the very first game obviously looked very promising. He had 11 points in only 15 minutes, four of seven from the field, made two of three shots from three-point range. So, And he had four assists in that time, showing a little glimpse of what he can offer the Heat as a guy that potentially can be a playmaker and a scorer and someone that can penetrate defenses and find shooters. So I think that he obviously presents a lot of upside, but it's going to be something that we have to see if he's going to be able to reach his full potential this year. I don't know if there's enough time. He's still in a minutes restriction right now, and it's hard to say how he feels. He hasn't really been an integral part of the offense just yet, but I think that at the very least, you can count on him providing above average defense for his position. And I do think that over time, as his minutes go up, he'll find more of a rhythm. And he should be a player that I think, at least off the bench, can be somebody that can be graded as a B minus addition at worst for the Miami Heat or a B plus addition at best. So it's just going to really depend on how long it takes for him to get back in game shape and for him to get steady minutes to be able to get into a rhythm. Yeah, the other thing I think that needs to be cautioned with Oladipo is if he's not playing well and they're just trying to get him in rhythm, which is it's why it's valuable that they have him now in the regular season with a slight cushion there uh, with with the overall lead in the East. But you don't want to be taking minutes away from guys, potentially taking minutes away from uh, Duncan Robinson if he's hot potentially taking minutes away from Max Struess if he's hot. Oladipo's getting, like you said, 16 minutes a game. So, yes, he's finding his rhythm and, and trying to get back to basketball shape uh, and get some in-game minutes. But come playoff time, if he's not playing well, and I know Spoh's a good coach, but Spoh's definitely going to have to pull him uh, if he's not playing well in favor of these guys who have played the full season and have been delivering results for the team. I get you. I think that the thing with the Miami Heat that they're really gauging here is the Heat are playing two results. The Heat obviously want to go as far as they can this year and potentially win a championship, and they obviously want to put the best team out on the floor to do that. But at the same time, Victor Oladipo finally coming back to play again, finally healthy. At the very end of this season, he's not going to be under contract anymore. And the Miami Heat, ideally, would like to have shown other teams that he has some degree of value so that they can make a decision on whether he's somebody that figures to be on the team long term or someone that they should flip for an asset that they can help surround their young core with. So I think that's the thing with Victor Oladipo. They kind of have an obligation to give him a certain number of minutes because if not, they're not going to be able to show any worth or value to other teams so I think you can count on Victor Oladipo regardless of whether he plays well or not. 
I think that you're going to see him get at least 15 minutes a game minimum just to show other teams that he's healthy again. But then they only sign him for one year min. Exactly. So I think so, that by the end of this year, they need to know how he did in the playoffs. They need to know, like, is this a guy that we want to resign or is he somebody that we're going to trade in the offseason? Yeah, what I'm saying, how are they going to trade him? Because he's not under contract. If they resign him, the classic ah. heat sign and trade, the trade that they're known for. Got it. It's well, the trade we'll that the Miami see. Heat popularized. <laughs> well, well, we'll have to see. But moving on to a team out west, Draymond Green is back with the Warriors. And as soon as he came back, it was very apparent that they missed their floor general. Uh, Steph, although he's the point guard, is more of a shooting point guard, as we all know. Greatest shooter ever to play the game. And the Warriors were pretty much sitting at 500 over the last 10 games without Draymond. Draymond comes in, Steph goes off for like 47 points, and then Steph gets injured against the Boston Celtics. But for a brief moment, you could tell that they missed Draymond's presence. So Steph will likely be back for their playoff push, but what do you think overall about Draymond coming back and the chances of the Warriors making it to the finals? I think that Draymond Green obviously is a huge morale boost for them. I think that losing him exposed the Warriors' warts a little bit and probably showed all the things that he does to cover up for them. As much as the Warriors are a very potent team on offense, without Draymond Green, they become a little bit liable on defense to give up a lot of points. And I think that that has a lot to do with the fact that Draymond Green, being a vocal leader on that end, he helps organize everyone and get them into their sets. When you have a young team with a bunch of young players that are playing vital roles and vital minutes, the mental aspects of the game are things that sometimes might go over their head a little and I think that having a guy like Draymond Green helps settle everybody down, helps get everybody in the right mindset. And he also helps cover for other people's mistakes, rotating, covering ground on the inside and on the outside. So even though in his games back, he hasn't really put up any eye-popping numbers, um, you know how Draymond Green is. He's not really going to break 10 points often, but he's going to give you seven rebounds, six assists, good defense, and toughness. And so I think that um, with him back, the Warriors obviously are going to go back to a top three team in the West. I just don't know that after we've seen some of their warts exposed, if I would consider them to be on the same tier as a team like the Phoenix Suns, which I know all year long at the beginning of the season, we were saying which of these teams was the better um, team and which one was the one seed. And it seemed really even, but I think at this point, um, the Phoenix Suns over the course of the season, their young players have also continued to get better. I think the Suns are better this year than last year. So I think that, um, even though Draymond Green does make them better, I don't know if he elevates them into the Suns tier. Yeah, the Suns are just on a tear, um, and they're still on a tear with CP3 uh, missing. So we'll see. Uh, the Grizzlies have now passed them for the second seed, them being the Golden State Warriors. So we'll see if the Warriors can grab that second seed back. But West is uh, heating up at that top three. Well, he seems more even up and down. But – Moving on from overall teams, and let's get into some 50-piece nuggets because people have been having monster performances in the month of March. We had LeBron get 56, Tatum for career-high 54, Irving for 50 on a very efficient night of shooting and then went for 60 against the Magic. Morant, 52 points on 22 of 30 shooting. Jokic got a 
close to 50 point game, but it was a 46 point triple double. And then just, it's just been monster games over and over again. So who he also had LeBron score 50. <laughs> so he got 50 twice. There you go. Well, who do you think has had the best outing over the last two weeks? Oof, this is tough. I mean, I think you mentioned that Towns also got 60, but I think that this maybe was the best scoring week that we've had in possibly NBA history. And it was during the time that, unfortunately, the court of opinion was out of session for a little bit because we were really busy. So there were a lot of updates that um, we weren't able to give you in real time, but a lot of things happened. I would say that probably of all of the games, maybe Kyrie Irving's 60-piece was the most impressive to me just because if you saw that game, the degree of difficulty on the shots matching the efficiency with those shots. I mean, it was just incredible to watch. I know that Carl Anthony Towns, his 60 piece was very impressive as well. He had also a double, double to go with it. He did a great job rebounding the basketball, but Kyrie Irving's 60 piece was just ridiculous. He shot 64% from the field. 66% 66% from three, 92% from the free throw. And he happened to, you know, also have four steals, six rebounds and four assists. It was just a masterful performance. And he does that, you know, two games after dropping 50. So I think that he's really showing you what he can do going eight of 12 from three, 20 of 31 from the field, 12 of 13 from the line. It was just a masterclass performance. And I think probably the best performance by any NBA player this year. Yeah, I have to agree with you. I mean, I, I think just overall, like you said, it's been an exciting couple of weeks of basketball. Um, and I think while the Lakers haven't been doing anything uh, special as a group, LeBron getting to that number two spot, leading or being second in the league right now and scoring um, at age 36, 37, with his 19th season in the NBA, showing no signs of slowing down. Um, I, I think that... It's just been, uh, it's been incredible to watch. Yeah, this has been, I mean, I'm, I'm curious to see what you think about this because this has been a topic of debate lately, but given the recent surge in scoring, are we just seeing perhaps maybe the most talented offensive, I guess, time period in NBA history? Do we just have the best talent in scoring that we've ever had? Or is it simply that, we just don't play defense anymore because people are dropping 50 seemingly every other night now. So it's either that the scores are incredible or the defense is terrible. I think it's more of the former than the latter. I think the scoring is actually better than uh, I, I think the increase in offensive efficiency is um, more than the decrease in defensive efficiency. I think there's a little bit of both, but I definitely think the offense is more. And the reason being is if you look pretty much as uh, BSC and ASC before Steph Curry, after Steph Curry, um, <laughs> if, if you look at the frames of offenses when Steph Curry started to stretch the floor, it was much more condensed before. So there weren't open lanes. There weren't people who were spotting up from the logo all the time. 
you, you didn't have this offensive prowess that allowed for a more fluid offense to take hold. You had people who were clogging the lanes more and who were able to switch more effectively on defense because they had less ground to cover. And now if you look at the after Steph Curry effect, everybody is super spaced out and you pretty much have to play half court defense at all times. So I think that the offensive schemes have been able to open up and get more efficient and better because of how spaced out the floor is. And then I think people are just knocking down shots from a wider variety of locations as compared to before. And I think if you were to take a look, I've never looked at this personally, but if you were to take a look at pre three point line and post three point line, I'd have to imagine that the scoring output, even if you adjusted for the additional points would have gone up because it would have spaced out the offense more and allowed for a more fluid offense that had more options and opportunities to score. I agree with that. That and also the fact that the league now has realized if you want to score more points, you need more possessions. So I think the league now as a whole just plays at a much faster pace. So there's just more shots to take. There's more opportunities to make a shot in today's NBA because you don't have, I guess, so much time wasting, just setting up a half court offense, getting a center to back down somebody in the post you know, eating away a lot of the shot clock. You get people jacking up shots much earlier in the shot clock now, which translates to a lot more scoring, a lot more opportunities. So I think it's all the things that you mentioned and then some. So yeah, it's just really a great time in the league right now. You also have to think too, think about players' health and how uh, how much people like Kobe, LeBron, um and and mj back in the day but you hear oh this person spends a million two million dollars on their health each year and you have to imagine that while not the entire league doesn't do that looking at you james harden um (laughs) that there is a uptick in the amount of players that are taking care of themselves every single day throughout the season and so they are at their peak or best physical performance. Whereas before in the eighties, nineties, and even the early two thousands, you had guys who were just partying, coming in the next day, playing basketball, going back out partying. And so that also had to have affected both offense and defense. But I would assume that people were more sluggish as opposed to, to your point, the faster pace of play with guys who are fresh, taking care of themselves and looking out for their body on a day in, day out, week in, week out basis. I agree with that. James Harden should have also played in the nineties. He's in the wrong era. He would have loved it. He, he would have, um, but moving on the, Mavericks have continued to uh, blaze up the conference standings. They're now sitting one and a half games out of the four seed and have climbed up to the fifth seed. And it's been all because of Luka Doncic. He is averaging 36 points per game over the last 10 or so games. While he's been electric and they have climbed up, do you think that they will be able to get out of the first round in a seven-game series if this season ended today against the Utah Jazz? I think against the Utah Jazz, they could potentially do it. Because the thing is, the Utah Jazz, I've said this about them all the time, they're not a hard team to game plan for. You know exactly what they're going to do. They don't have enough players on that team that offer three levels of scoring 
to bake a diverse enough offense that you can consistently bet on them to win in the playoffs. When teams zero in and have a very strong game plan for you, you're going to see it's going to become tougher for them to score the ball. Donovan Mitchell is going to have to be super heroic. If they don't have a super heroic Donovan Mitchell performance, they're not going to win. And I think that I would bet on Luka Doncic over Donovan Mitchell. Not to say that Donovan Mitchell isn't a great player, but he's just not Luka Doncic. So I think that against that team, he could possibly make it work. And I think that the addition of Spencer Dinwiddie has actually really helped them. It's been really underrated addition for them, but he's a guy that has really solidified their bench, which has been one of their biggest weaknesses. Come in and hit some big shots. He hit a game winner against Brooklyn the other night. And um, he's been playing some good basketball lately, averaging 19 points per game in his last 10, shooting 38% from three, 44% from the field. Now that Porzingis is gone, they don't seem to have the chemistry issues that they used to have, and they're rolling. They're just winning games right now. Luka Doncic right now in those last 10, averaging 31 points per game, 39% from three, and 49% from the field. And he's doing this all while averaging 9.8 rebounds and 6.8 assists. So um, I definitely think that Luka Doncic, from what we saw, from what he can do in the playoffs as a one-man wrecking crew, they could potentially upset this Jazz team if Donovan Mitchell can't play at the same level. I disagree with you. I think that if the Mavericks have any fighting chance, they would have to have monster performances by Dinwiddie and Luka every single night. And they just don't have the interior presence as a team to keep up with any team that has uh, a decent big man. And the Utah Jazz have Rudy Gobert, who, yes, you can say he's not the biggest offensive threat, but defensively, he's going to clog the pain. He's going to stop these guys um, overall. And I just, I don't see the... I'm telling you, like, Luca is going to terrorize Rudy Gobert in pick and roll. You'll see. Uh, if, they, if they play in the playoff series, who he's going How? to terrorize him. He doesn't have to necessarily go into the paint with him. I'm telling you, if they, if they play each other, you're going to see Rudy Gobert defending a pick and roll like every other possession with Luka Doncic bringing him out to the perimeter and gassing him out. He doesn't have to be a big player. He just has to be a player that's going to set a screen and be willing to roll. He's going to be running around all over the place. And the other thing that's going to be tough is Luka Doncic. He runs that pick and roll to perfection. If you are not elite with your decision-making on whether he's going to pass to that roll man, pass to a pop guy, whether he's going to pull up because he's got three-level score. He can pull up from deep three, can pull up from mid-range. He can change pace on the way to the basket. Rudy Gobert looks like he is in a swimming pool when he has to move laterally on the perimeter. This guy on the perimeter is going to get burned. I'm telling you because they're going to look for him. He did it last playoffs, actually. If you remember when Luka Doncic was playing the Lakers, when the Lakers won and they were actually good, he actually almost upset them. Unfortunately for him, he got hurt. But he was terrorizing Anthony Davis and LeBron James in pick and roll. They had no answer for him. He's going to average like 40 points per game against the Jazz probably because they don't have someone on the perimeter that can match up with him. And they, they can't trust Donovan Mitchell to defend him. Who do they have that can defend Luka Doncic? Not a single guy. Well, all I know is the Jazz hat did take the three-game series against the Mavs this year. The first game, Luka did not play, so we'll call that a wash. And the second game, he did play. And the difference maker uh, in the second game was – uh, the second versus the third game where 
the Mavs won the last game. The Jazz won the second game. Uh, was Dorian Finney-Smith, their power forward, scoring instead of seven points when they lost, scoring 21 points. So pick and roll can work, and it potentially can be with Dorian Finney. But the only way that that's going to work is if he's knocking down shots. Yeah, definitely he's going to have to do that in order for them to not um, send too many double teams and trap Luka. But I, I really do think that – I'm not saying that they're the favorites to beat the Jazz, but I would definitely not be surprised. I just don't think that it's a good matchup for the Jazz. Well, we'll have to see. But to bring back the initial conversation about those 50-piece nuggets as well as this uh, Luka and Mavs resurgence, let's talk – about the end of the year prediction being the all NBA first team. Usually it's pretty clear cut. We have five or six guys. Maybe there's one snub, but this year it seems like there shouldn't be a second team. Shouldn't be a third team. We should just have 15 players that are all NBA first team because this team, this overall season has had so many great performances and overall performance throughout the year has just been at an all-time high so do you think this is the hardest team ever to decide in recent memory as far as i can remember yes i can't remember any other occasion in my lifetime that the nba first team has been this hard to decide it really is going to be a shame for whoever doesn't make it because they really are all equally deserving so i don't know who's going to get snubbed but it's going to be tragic because all these guys this year have been playing at an MVP level. Like I think that the top, I think five candidates for all NBA first team this season could have all easily been MVP candidates any other year. So it'll be really interesting to see who gets snubbed really, because there are so many deserving candidates. I think that when you're looking at this, um, the obvious choices for first team, you have to put Joel Embiid on that list. You got to put Giannis Antetokounmpo on that list. You got to put Nikola Jokic on that list, no question. And then I think a lot of their favorites, a lot of people are clamoring for John Morant. A lot of people are clamoring for Luka Doncic. And a lot of people are clamoring for DeMar DeRozan, who of late um, has not, you know, been making quite as many headlines as the Bulls have struggled a little bit of late. But we can't forget DeMar DeRozan did break some records this year, um, did get 35 points or better, eight straight games. I mean, he was doing some incredible stuff. So, how do you decide who to eliminate from this list? Uh, I mean, I think you're going to have to take a look. I think the recency effect is going to take hold as well. Obviously, you have to look at the efficiency rating. But I think that the first couple of people that you mentioned, uh, spot on, I think Joel Embiid, Giannis, and Nikola Jokic are going to be uh, for sure locks. I think that after that, is where it gets dicey, the guard positions. Um, I personally think that it's going to be John Morant and Trey Young. Um, unless Luca or DeMar catch fire to end the season, I think that Trey Young has been quietly having a phenomenal, phenomenal season. He is uh, fifth in the league in scoring right now by point one if not he'd be fourth he's played the most games out of anybody in the top five in scoring he's right now by per sixth in the league uh he's the um highest rated guard in terms of per and he's 
not quite at the 50, 40, 90 club, but he's at, he's within spitting distance. Uh, he's at 45%, 38%, and 90% from field goal percentage, three-point percentage, and free throw percentage. He's almost averaging a double-double with 9.5 assists. So he's just having a monster season, and nobody seems to really be talking about it. No, I think you're right. I think that he obviously is a very deserving candidate too. And I think that you're right. No one's talking about it. The guy did just drop 47 and then 46 on back-to-back nights on the 13th and the 14th of March. But I think that the reason why he's not going to be in the conversation for first team is because of his team success. Unfortunately for him, as great as his numbers are, all those other guys that we talked about have incredible numbers that are probably just as impressive or eye-popping in their own ways with the exception that all these other guys have their teams firmly in playoff position. Trey Young, if the season ended today, can't even guarantee that his team would be in the playoff. So as good as his numbers have been, probably the best season of his young career, he's been incredible. But I think that the whole team success aspect of it, I mean, these guys are so even that they're going to be splitting hairs. I think that's going to be one of the factors that they harp on. So I don't think Trey Young will get it. But I think you're right about the fact that the forward and center is going to be a lock. It's really just going to come down to the guards, who you think is most deserving. Um, I don't think that there's a way that Luka Doncic doesn't make it for guard if he keeps this up. He's averaging close to a triple-double, and he's got his team firmly in winning position. Now I think it's really going to come down to John Morant or DeMar DeRozan for the other spot. I'm not sure who will get it between them. Um, it's really hard to say. It's just these guys are all putting up incredible numbers in their own way. But if I had to be a betting man, I'd say DeMar DeRozan is maybe the one that gets squeezed out just because John Moran has his team flying high right now. His team right now is on a hot streak. You got Luka Doncic also on a hot streak. And like you said, recency bias plays into a factor. And since Luka Doncic and John Morant currently are having a better time on the court than DeMar DeRozan and the Bulls are, if the season continues to go that way, I would think that both of those guys make it over him. We'll have to see. But on to our last segment, what's the verdict? I will ask you a series of questions. You will say whether the person or situation is guilty or innocent. Ready to go? Let's do it. Laker fans have been ruthless this season. They continue to call Russell Westbrook West Brick, and he now – says that he no longer wants to bring his family name uh, to shame and he doesn't want to bring his family to games because of what people are saying about his name and just calling him things in general. So Pat Bev also against the Timberwolves, uh, he held his nose calling that team trash and then Russ said no one has done anything on that team. Are Laker fans guilty of taking it too far? And is Russ guilty of being too sensitive? My opinion is that everyone in LA is guilty. All of them. They're all guilty because honestly, come on, Russell Westbrook. We're really talking about he's calling me names. They're making fun of my name. I can't play like this. I mean, that sounds like some elementary school stuff. We're talking about a grown man who is in his 30s and is getting paid millions of dollars to play a children's game and you're acting like this is literally something that is destroying your mental psyche to hear fans have heckled since the beginning of time fans have always heckled this is not anything new 
And yes, it is unfortunate that right now Russell Westbrook is the guy that's getting picked on and he's getting picked on most by his own fans, which is what's ironic. But at the end of the day, suck it up. You're getting paid millions of dollars to play a child's game. And they're calling you Westbrook because you are breaking a lot of shots. You know, thank God for him. He finally hit a meaningful shot the other day to send the Nets or uh, send the Lakers to overtime. Um, finally proving to people that he can, in fact, occasionally hit a shot. But I really do think that he needs to get over it because him saying stuff like that and being so sensitive is the exact reason that people keep going at him. Why do people dump popcorn on Russell Westbrook? Why do people call him names? Why is there a new video every seeming day of someone heckling him, trying to get a rise out of him? Because you know that he's sensitive and you know that he's probably going to explode and you know that he's volatile and it's fun to get a rise out of him. So he, he actually is the one that is causing this to himself by reacting the way that he does. But as a Laker fan, you know that this guy is a mentally volatile guy. You know that he's very sensitive. You know that he's probably not going to respond well to this kind of stuff, given how fragile his psyche is. As a fan, if you want your team to win, it's probably not the best thing to do to be, I guess, getting into the head of your own player. But, I mean, I guess I can see it from both sides. Like, Russell does have to man up. It's really not that big of a deal. It's just heckling. And Lakers fans probably could give him a little bit of a break if they want him to be a little less of a West brick. Yeah, it's um, the more time goes on with him, the more it becomes apparent that he should have never asked for a trade out of Oklahoma City. Like, yeah, imagine he, he'd be good right now. Yeah, he'd be fine. He'd be still be able to stat uh, stat pad. He would be able to continue, like, being the dominant player in OKC. Uh, they, it's not like they're paying anybody right now, so they would still have the funds to pay him. And he would still be revered by his community there. He'd still be revered by the people of L.A. It wouldn't matter if the Oklahoma City Thunder were losing, like, every year it would still be fine he'd still be like oh my god he like how kobe was treated even when the lakers were losing nobody was like oh kobe you suck it was like this guy stayed with us through thick and thin he's the best so like but i think the thing is too kobe what you can't get a rise out of kobe the way that you can get it out of westbrook so i completely agree yeah like that's why people didn't do it because they knew it was a waste of time like his personality isn't one that lends itself to be trolled. Russell Westbrook is the exact personality type that a troll looks for. Yeah. It like to, to your point, it sh- he shouldn't show that it gets a rise out of him, but also because it gets a rise out of him, it definitely affects the way that he plays. Like I'm sure 100%. he goes in every night and he's like, I got to do well tonight. If I don't do well, they're going to continue to call me Westbrook. And I can't, I can't be called Westbrook. I'm Westbrook. I'm not Westbrook. Like he's just <laughs> like he's just sitting there. He probably like sniffs himself. He's like, I don't smell like trash. I'm not trash. I'm not. <laughs> I, I, I promise you, I'm not trash. And it's like you're you're completely right. He's behaving like a elementary school kid, even though he's playing an elementary school game. That's not how he should be behaving or how he should be taking things. And you know, it, I. He's just got to get off the Lakers, man. He's got to go <laughs> back 
I mean, I think that everybody wants that. I think he wants that. I think the Lakers want that. Everybody wants that. But the thing is, how do you get him off the Lakers? He has, it's the worst contract in NBA history, maybe at this point, because you have maybe the highest or one of the wealthiest contracts of all time up to this point that was ever signed. And you got a player who can't even provide probably half of that value at best. So how do you justify acquiring a player like that from a financial standpoint, it's already damn near impossible. And from a talent standpoint, how do you get back even value for something like that? I mean, they're just gonna have to let this thing play out because I don't see you any know, team trading for him. You know how you have the most questionable decisions of the trade deadline from the Portland trailblazers have Damian Lillard be shipped over there for Russell Westbrook, Taylor Horton Tucker, uh, whatever other young player that they want to send to Portland. And like who? They have nothing. They're tapped out. They I sent every young player. An unprotected 2027 and 2029 first round draft pick because you know both of those will be valuable. So there's just, no shot that deal happens. They could get so much more for Lillard from almost anybody. There's no way. The Lakers actually have maybe the least amount of trade capital of anyone in the league right now. Yeah. It's uh I don't we'll know see. anyone we'll who has a worse situation from a future standpoint, from like assets that you can trade with. They don't really have like any assets whatsoever. No one wants yeah. anything that the Lakers have. Nothing. It's funny. People have said, like, oh, get uh LeBron is pining for Sam Presti to go to that team. Sam Presti as big of a like GM and as like as magical as he's been, he would be leaving a treasure trove to go to a barren wasteland. Yeah, there's no shot. There's no yeah. shot. He didn't acquire all those picks just to let them go by the wayside and have someone else develop it. So there's no shot. Yeah, The only way he does that is if he trades all of them to the Lakers to get Westbrook back and then goes to the Lakers. Yeah, we'll see about that. We'll see if the but, Lakers can break out of this curse. Moving on, the previous title favorite Warriors have suddenly lost nine of their last 12, fallen third in the West with Draymond being out. He's now back, but Steph is out. Are the Warriors guilty of being overrated? Um, I mean, I think that they were probably overrated at the beginning of the year when Stephen Curry was seemingly going to have an MVP level season that was going to be comparable to the one that he won MVP previously. At that point in time, it looked like they were at this very same tier as the Suns were. I think that they are overrated from that standpoint. I don't think that they're on the same level as the Suns now, now that we've seen a little bit of their warts exposed, but I don't think that they're overrated in general. Like they're still a very good team and they're still a team that probably is going to make a very deep playoff run. It's not like if they went against the Suns, they'd get swept or like they have no chance, but I do think that they're overrated from the standpoint of they don't quite have as much depth as maybe we thought. So um, I do think that the calls for, oh, it's going to be either Warriors or Suns in the finals for the West, no matter what, is probably a little premature for that. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think they're properly rated now, and we'll see what they're at with full strength. But to continue with them, Seth Curry was injured against the Celtics after a play by Marcus Smart where he dove for the ball. Steve Kerr lamented it as dirty. Smart countered and said that he went for the ball 
and was not making a dirty play. Is Smart guilty of being a dirty player? Oh, this one's so tough. I mean, I saw the play. It obviously was, you know, what Marcus Smart was describing. He was diving for the ball. But it also, I don't know, it was weird. If you saw the video, it did kind of look like he was aware that he was on top of Steph Curry's ankle at kind of like a strange angle. And I'm not saying that he, you know, definitely tried to hurt him, but he definitely was not trying to make things comfortable for him by pressing all of his body weight onto his ankle the way that he did. He really did seem to just lay his entire weight into him. So, and Marcus Smart, a guy that has been known to be a little questionable in the past with all his excessive flopping, basically doing whatever it takes to win, very Pat Beverly style player in that sense. I honestly don't think that he's the kind of guy that would feel bad to potentially injure somebody inadvertently. But I don't know if I would go as far as to say that, you know, he was like, yeah, I'm going to take Stephen Curry out on this play. I think it was more so the kind of thing where he really was diving for the ball and he was thinking to himself, well, if Steph Curry gets hurt, I really don't care. Not my problem. But I don't think he was going at it with malicious intent. I don't think he was going for it, like you said, with malicious intent. But like you also said, I think that he didn't really mind if, if Steph Curry got injured. Um, so is he guilty of being a dirty player? I don't think so, um, but... I personally don't like Marcus Smart very much, but I'm not going to say that he would do something like that. That's pretty low. Yeah, I agree. Well, that's it. That's the show. Like us, subscribe to us on all your favorite podcast players, and follow us on your favorite social media channels. I'm Eric Gonzalez. And I'm Mike Stir. Court is adjourned. Cut. Cause of opinion